Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello, Stephanomics here, and this week, a special insight on China from someone who has a quite different perspective on the country than many of the economists and policymakers we've had pontificating about it on this show. K.U. Jin, a professor at the London School of Economics who's lived for some time in London but grew up in China and still spends part of the year there. In fact, she's in Beijing now, but she's kindly joined me for a conversation about her new book, The New China Playbook. Uh, K.U. Jin, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Um, as I said, it, it's sort of relatively rare to have someone with both feet so firmly planted in both China and the West. And I think the other sort of particular thing about you is that you have you know, personally experienced, you and your family, the extraordinary transformation of China's society and economy um, over the past 30 or 40 years. And you, you start and you end the book with that. So I think before we talk about some of the themes in your book, tell us a little bit about your personal story of your family and how different things might have been for them if, uh, if you hadn't had the kind of changes in China that we've seen. Well, first of all, great to be with you, Stephanie. Thanks, uh, thanks for this opportunity. Um, yes, I think me, my family, but just it's only really one of so many Chinese families who have uh, gone through this, this incredible economic transformation in China. My parents uh, worked in the fields uh, during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, they, they, they were able to move to Beijing and uh, create this life for me because of the amazing meritocracy uh, and the Deng Xiaoping's uh, reform and opening up uh, since the late 1970s that afforded so many Chinese really an economic opportunity. Um, and so my parents would be the first, uh, again, among many in their generation to have really seen their future uh, and their fate uh, go from, uh, you know, just from, from the farms to, uh, to the city and uh, even to the West. I grew up in China. But I was uh, an exchange student uh, in high school in the U.S. And when I went to the U.S., it was very interesting because everyone knew I was from China in high school and they could only talk about or ask me about Taiwan, Tibet, human rights. Um, but by the time I got to college, uh, a few years later, people were learning Mandarin. And a few years later, when we were graduating, people moved to China even uh, to look for jobs. So that was a personal experience. But again, so typical among so many Chinese. You start the book just sort of talking about the, the, the house that you were first born into. And also you mentioned, I think, at the end that it was really uh, sort of luck or uh, and I guess the, the good performance of your father in his exams that meant that you left the countryside at all. Yes, um, I was born in an 11 square meter apartment, which at that time was really a luxury. And we had communal kitchens uh, and my father had absolutely no family background. Uh, he was the son of uh, factory workers, uh, uh, you know, in down and south. 
And he had, he was among the first uh, generation to take the graduate examina- examination, national graduate examination, which Deng Xiaoping uh, reinstalled and got himself into Beijing. And then, you know, the rest is history. And we're all used to our own sort of parents or grandparents saying, I remember when, but it's the drama of that uh, when you're t- talking about the pace of change in China. Is it something that the you talk about around the dinner table or is it just passed without comment at this point? What we do talk about often that my parents like to remind me is how grateful I should be and we should all be to uh, Deng Xiaoping's policies and economic and opening up and how difficult it was for the Chinese and really how grateful they should be to the country and to the great leaders that have given everybody an opportunity. And I think that is a very, um, uh, you know, kind of um, a common uh, a common feature in the discussion of all Chinese families. And it's interesting, even in the way you say that, you have pointed up one of the great things that people outside China find so hard to understand, um, that sort of deep sense of deference and gratitude that is so widely shared by people across China is kind of one of those you know, we don't spend our we don't spend very much of our time you know, giving thanks for our, for our leaders and their and their great decisions. And just in terms of the numbers, you had a great uh, stat. It's just a good way of summarizing it. You mentioned that over the years of the industrial revolution were considered to be amazing because they improved the standard of living by seventy five percent within a single lifetime. But the growth rates in China, as you point out, mean that many Chinese will see living standards rise 75-fold, so 7,500%. I thought that just really kind of put it into perspective. Okay, so your book, you mentioned the phrase several times, reading China in the original, that what do we miss by not doing that, by not seeing China through Chinese eyes? You know, you know, culturally, historically, China comes from a very different place. And we keep on judging uh, China for what it is through the Western lens. We'll get China wrong. We'll predict China wrong, uh, as we have many times. We will not see uh, their view of the Chinese people. And uh, so whether you're a policymaker or a student um, learning about China or businesses uh, wanting to engage or disengage with China, just having that bit of a cultural and historical nuance and understanding how that really vastly different economic model, political economy model works uh, would be just so important. So what's an example of a very of a, an, a misunderstanding of China that is potentially dangerous at the current time? Well, I think it starts, you know, from the misunderstanding of China's ambitions and goals in the world. Uh, there is a view that uh, China is trying to displace the U.S., for example, but it is actually trying to overcome a middle income trap. Uh, we're talking about its economic goal in the next 15 years or so to be reaching $23,000 of per capita income. We're talking about 600 million people who's living under $300 of monthly income, still needing to reach international standards middle income. And uh, I think for the Chinese, they believe, well, first of all, if the Chinese people have a right to prosperity, have a right to uh, attain the technological prowess that all developing countries and emerging countries, emerging markets want to have someday. Uh, I don't think it's stupid enough to want to displace the U.S. uh, for some reason, because it's not really uh, currently feasible. 
Um, but also, you know, less dangerous, but just so important and interesting. Every time I mention this, I think people are just so surprised, even extremely cosmopolitan, well-educated people, is um, how the political economy works in China. People think about China as a centralized uh, state with, um, you know, with almighty control, but actually the economic model is a very decentralized model. I call this the mayor economy uh, in uh, in my book. And it just goes to show that all the economic transformations, the reforms we talked about, the innovation, controlling pollution, and really just building these amazing unicorns, so many unicorns, hundreds of unicorns a year in China, scattered all throughout China, rather than just focused on Beijing and Shenzhen and Shanghai, all because of the mayors, uh, so to speak. That economic decentralization is so far none of you know my, my friends have, have understood. Of course, what people look at and what they think of when they're sort of focused on the control of the power of the state uh, is the control over political activity and to some extent the power control of individual thought when you think of all the surveillance, the great firewall preventing people in China from, from seeing everything on the on the internet um, from outside China. I mean, it's it's hard to argue that it isn't a strong central state. Uh, politically, it's a very strong central state. Um, but I think the question that you've raised here, there's also a bit of misunderstanding. There's actually a very, very dynamic, more than we believe, dynamic civic debate on social media in China. And apart from um, a few taboo issues, uh, there are things ranging from organizing protests uh, around China. You know, as an example, there was something like more than 11,000 protests just over land use rights, not to mention so many other protests. And they allow that. There is criticism. One of the top key uh, hot issues is criticisms of local officials uh, calling them out in corruption, or if they had a mistress that was found somewhere, that was spotted somewhere, or expensive watches. Um, there's a huge amount of pushback. Uh, again, these stories don't get reported, but uh, for instance, in the in the city of Hangzhou uh, down south, you know, people complained about um, uh, this uh, the data collection and pr data privacy issues from uh, a public park. And then they canceled the whole thing. They canceled the, the facial recognition ticket system. So you're actually able to push the local officials to change and relatively rapidly if there's wide uh, discontent. Now, of course, there's some things that you don't hear and there is a censorship on the social media platform, the highly, highly sensitive political issues, which not every single Chinese citizen uh, talks about. But again, there are also loopholes. You know, some of them would post during... Um, the uh, midnight, and then by the time the officials in charge wake up, it was already, you know, everywhere uh, on the internet. So it's not that easy to implement. Um, but I agree with you, Stephanie. Uh, there has been tighter control um, and uh, more surveillance uh, in the years. That's for sure true. But to see the complete picture, we have to recognize that it's not a bunch of just 1.4 billion people having no voice at all. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. 
Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. We've had a situation where over 30 or 40 years, China has made itself, as we discovered recently, indispensable to global manufacturing uh, production. Even even people who don't think they're dependent on China have found, you know, actually there's, you know, some number of parts that come through China or, or are made in China. And that's obviously animated President Biden's push to um, diversify uh, production globally and to some extent decouple. I'm sort of fascinated when the when China China obviously would be proud of of what it's achieved. Is it um, does it think that the rest of the world was a bit foolish to allow themselves so easily to become hooked on Chinese production? Does it inculcate a sort of lack of respect? It sort of sometimes feels we sort of wonder whether China's kind of laughing at us behind our backs for having got ourselves in this situation. <laughs> oh, no, no, absolutely not. I think globalization was the best thing that happened to China and allowing China uh, to, to, to embrace it. And unless we really kind of believe that somehow we ought to have three quarters of the people in the world living in abject poverty, I just don't see any rationale against this view of deglobalization and um, decoupling. And we, we can't forget about the 80% of the people still living in developing world um, uh, in, in today's world. Thinking about uh, China right now, and obviously people are looking at China's economy, being a, feeling a bit concerned about the slowdown we've seen in the last few months and some of the very deep-seated challenges that the government faces, for example, the, in the, in the, the real estate trying to um, reduce the amount of investment in, in real estate without seriously undermining the economy, given that, that property has been such a big, played such a big part in growth. Um, how do you judge the way Xi Jinping and his new administration are sort of handling those challenges facing the economy? Well, first of all, the overarching mood is um, a return of pragmatism. Pragmatism just the basic principle for Chinese people all these years, and still not forgotten, still most important, despite everything we think about security and nationalism, pragmatism is actually what the Chinese people want the most. 
So it's kind of ironic that the economy has to suffer that much before the return of pragmatic goals. Once again, keep your head down, um, make GDP, create jobs. And that's what the government is focused on. Sorry, just to interrupt, when you say the return of pragmatism, so what what was it returning from? What have we seen well, we had the previous seen years. a lot of, yeah, we, especially in the last year or so during COVID and during the party Congress, there was a lot of mention of security. Uh, there was a lot of mention of the threats that have um, encircled China, external, internal pandemic, and how security was really the most important um, uh, thing for, for China. And uh, we're going to see security being continued to be important, but it will be a pendulous swing between uh, the economy and security and sometimes economics wars. And um, as you mentioned, Stephanie correctly pointed out, the real economics uh, difficulty right now is to find something to replace uh, the property sector, which broadly accounted for a third of China's GDP. And even though resources are directed towards now hard tech, uh, now the high tech, um, now towards you know things like EVs and renewables, that's just not enough in the short term to get the GDP numbers to create the kind of uh, jobs that that um, that uh, that are required for social stability, um, and f- to reduce youth unemployment, which is north of twenty percent currently. Uh, so, what could that be? They're still finding the way. So, in the short term, we we really might see. Um, a slow economy. I don't think there's going to be a collapse or any sort. I think the government will do enough to reach the goal of reaching $23,000 per capita income in 2035. But I wouldn't keep my hopes up for really spectacular performance. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that um, our uh, chief economist, Tom Orlick, was saying, you know, just a few years ago, it was very difficult to imagine China not rapidly overtaking the US as the world's biggest economy. But we're now seeing as we update our new forecasts and think about downside and upside scenarios. And there's there's lots of scenarios under which um, that that great moment of China overtaking the US is is delayed a long time and somewhere it doesn't happen at all. Well, Stephanie, I think it's true with these scenarios, but China needs to only only needs to grow 1.5 percentage points faster than the U.S. to overtake it in a little more than 10 years. And I think it's actually pretty uh, plausible, given that it's all about relative performance. But I think um, it really depends on how how you get there. Right. Uh, So just in terms of nominally achieving a size that's larger than the U.S., I'm actually more optimistic uh, than those projections. Um, but I don't think it necessarily means all that much uh, unless you really raise the standards of living, unless China um, really um, uh, really is able to uh, come up with its own you know, uh, high-tech independence, which again, I think is going to be the story of the next uh, decade. And uh, that, that the, the, you know, the econ- economic growth is actually real rather than just the macro numbers. You talk quite a lot about the crucial importance for the continued support for uh, the the government and for the party is that the that it deliver stability, that it deliver rising prosperity. Um, is the is the government is and as is China ready for a situation in which we don't see um, the kind of dramatic economic growth we've seen, or indeed we may see you know quite meager growth over the next few years. I think one 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 group to watch is the younger generation. You know, imagine that you've 
done everything in your life and your family has spent every penny of their savings on your education um, and you get a bachelor's degree and you're in 20s and you don't even have a first job. I mean, that's seriously concerning uh, for the Chinese families and therefore um, for the the government. Uh, And so how do you solve that high youth unemployment problem, I think, comes before many other things. Because remember that Chinese families, another cultural misunderstanding that I highlight in my book is that it's a dynastic you know, family. It's not about maximizing one's individual consumption as the Western canonical economic model always assumes, but it's about, you know, intergenerational altruism, uh, household, uh, maximizing household consumption or saving for your children or uh, saving so that you can support your parents in an older age. Uh, none of that, very little of that is featured uh, in the in the in the in, in these um, basic uh, workhorse frameworks in the in the Western economics. But that is the, just the basic foundation. Um, so when the Chinese families are unhappy collectively, then I think it's it's a potential threat to social stability. Now we saw how rapid things changed at the end of last year during the pandemic when China opened up so much earlier than expected hmm. as of resistance. I mean, that just goes to show the people has enormous power and the sea of the people is really what keeps the float of leadership, um, keeps that boat of uh, leadership afloat. Um, we, we're not seeing necessary uh, signs of social instability of, because of the economy yet. It really depends on whether that pragmatic attitude will hold in the coming years, there are there's a gap of 25 million jobs um, in manufacturing in the next three years needing to be filled. There is a 300,000 talent gap just in semiconductor sectors alone. Um, but the, the real chasm is that there's you know there's a difference between expectations and reality. And the Chinese students, all of them getting this bachelor's degree, wants to have a high earning job in finance and real estate, except that there are not that many jobs in finance and real estate. You talk about the new generation and them having different expectations and um, potentially just very different individual experiences from their family. One of the things, the basic things that the West has been surprised about, rightly or wrongly, is that there hasn't been um, more of a move towards more democratic, more individualistic society as a market economy has taken hold in China. At the bottom of that is a sort of continued belief that as you move to a more service-oriented, so service sector-based economy, which structurally they have to do, and as they move to having more de- more of the growth of the economy driven by consumption, not investment, which I think the government also recognises, a country, and certainly as you try and develop more and more uh, technological innovation and you are more on the kind of frontier of technology rather than um, catching up to the rest of the world, that to us spells a need for a more individualistic um, society, one where people will feel, are more likely to feel oppressed by a very strong single party government. So do you not, do you not recognize that as a, as a possibility that some of those cultural traditions will come right up against the just the, the economy as it is today and will be in the next 10 20 years? 
the relationship with authority is something that is very different from the West. And it's kind of ingrained in the Chinese people since we were young, the relationship uh, with our parents and our Confucian family, uh, the relationship with our teachers, uh, you know, and, and of, of course, the relationship with, with authorities, uh, the government. Uh, the Chinese people have always had to learn to balance that desire of uh, exerting one's individual free will and um, behaving in a community, uh, uh, deference and collaboration and cooperation with the government uh, or with your authorities. But I think, Stephanie, um, at the bottom line, if you're asking, you know, if the question is if the Chinese people want to have a more free and open society, I think I think the, the answer is a resounding yes. And I think whether it's the new generation and even much more so the older generation, like those uh, in the 1960s, they 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 aspire democratic values. But I also have to say they're not that inspired by its Western incarnation, uh, Western incarnation of democracy, uh, because they would be, you know, observing the fact that there's so much bickering and for the U.S., They'd be wondering why a society that champions rights uh, don't give all the women rights to end unwanted pregnancies. And they would be, you know, looking at the gun violence and the potholes on the streets in the U.S. And they would be they'd be wondering. Now, that was not necessarily cased um, in the 80s and 90s when the Chinese people was more mesmerized by the U.S., and were very deeply impressed. So at that point, you saw many Chinese people aspiring to that uh, that society and that openness and that freedom, et cetera. But I think less and less so, and this is very clear from the surveys, international surveys of the different generations, the new generations has no appetite to have an overhaul of their own system. And uh, yes, I think things have become difficult in the last few years, last uh, two years, especially by the end of the pandemic. Um, but over the last decade, the Chinese people have been more proud, not less proud, and more sure of their system, the power of their system, uh, than, than, than compared to many years ago. Again, I'm not saying what is good and wrong, right or wrong, but this is, I'm just stating the facts of how the Chinese people feel when they look at democracies for inspiration outside of China. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. 
I mean, you say in your book uh, that understanding Chinese thinking doesn't mean endorsing it in its entirety. I have to admit, kind of as you read it, it sort of feels like you do pretty much endorse it in its entirety. I mean, you, even the mistakes that you identify uh, or the economic problems that you identify, you know, you then sort of later in the book explain how they have been reversed or remedied by a very agile and res- you know flexible uh, response by by the state. So I guess I'm just wondering, do you um, what do you think that the, the other countries have done better than China? Where do you think China should needs to learn lessons? I think if you felt a sense of endorsement, it was an endorsement of a certain kind of model in the early stages of development, not eternally. And if there's one thing I think there it is important, is important and proved to be repeatedly crucial for countries to jump out of poverty and slowly tread on the middle income path towards rich in, to rich income, it's high quality state capacity. And China's model was a form, one form of delivering high quality state capacity, not the only and unique form. But I think it does have certain developmental lessons. Uh, and just take a solid example. Recently, China became the largest producer and consumer of EVs within a decade. How was it able to do that? Well, it wasn't able to, it wasn't, it wouldn't have been able to do that without the government installing 4 million EV charging stations around the country. Compared to China, the U.S. is 140,000, and it wouldn't have been able to do it so quickly if the local government officials were not so avidly working on coordinating supply chains all around China, you know, um, gathering battery makers, uh, control systems, manufacturers, etc. all together. That requires high quality state capacity. But can you think of anything that China got wrong that America's got right? Oh, yes. And you, you mentioned the, the, the things that other countries done well. <laughs> you know, there, there, there are many countries um, that, uh, you know, we always talk about getting to Denmark, <laughs> uh, even in the West, you know, the kind of uh, the... The, the you know the lower levels of inequality, um, the social goods and public goods that have been delivered to the people, the general level of happiness. I think we should all aspire to get to Denmark, but Denmark <laughs> is also kind of tiny, if I may say so. So it's obviously more difficult for bigger countries like the U.S. and China. And eventually, we're going to see what's going to happen to India, right? And so I think all of these large economies have their 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 challenges because of the complexity of society. I will say that, um, but you know, you know, if if we observe uh, South Korea or Japan uh, closer as neighbors, you know, they are. They are good models um, of uh, relatively good liberal democracies that have worked. Um, uh, but I think that the, the real issue really is China is going to become much more complex social, even more than now. And that's going to be the real challenge for the country and for the government, because uh, in the last 40 years, people were centered on one goal, and that was economic growth and uh, senior income grow up, up and up. And that was what... Um, uh, that was the focal point of the nation. Everybody was rallied around that goal. Now, as you reach middle income, as you reach, um, uh, you know, a richer income, country level income, uh, yeah, people are going to want different things. They're going to want their preferences to be reflected ultimately in political decisions. And so I think that will be a challenge. And how can you manage? It's going to be much more difficult to manage a complex society with a wide 
range of needs and desires rather than just the economy. So I think that would really be the challenge for China. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to talk to you, but I just find it kind of interesting that you can't. I mean, you, as you say, there's the two big countries, and there's lots of things that are different about them. But I just, it, yeah, it seems like you can't think of something that China's got wrong. Oh no, and no, America's no, got right. I've been, I've been, I've been, um, I've been uh, uh, digressing. No, look, the Chinese. <laughs> are absolutely mesmerized by entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and the technological innovations like ChatGPT. They are obsessed with them. The new generation are obsessed with them. And how do you have a society that can allow these great things to happen is what absolutely I think uh, the U.S. would be ahead of China for a very, very long time. Uh, and if we're talking about basically breakthrough technologies, it's in America. It's not in China yet. Mm. That comes down to so many things, so many factors, and uh, not least uh, civil society and its openness and uh, its relationship between the universities and, um, and, uh, and, and, and industries and that free flow of ideas, absolutely crucial. And that's, that's for sure something that the U.S. Uh, has gotten right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so uh, my final question, do you find the students at LSE very different from students who teach? It's an obvious question, but I'm just fascinated. I mean, when you talk about this sort of tradition, the way people deal with their teachers and everything else, do you find the British students ter- terribly insubordinate and cheeky? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think, um, no, not at all. I think you, um, you know, actually, you know, each student is different, but I think the Chinese students come into my office and often start with what their parents think, which is, you know, <laughs> surprising, especially when it comes to their future. Um, but look, you know, good students are always great students because of their ability to think out of the box. And we see that whether you're Chinese or Brits. And I think the new generation, as I mentioned, they're they're much more, so to speak, individualistic and selfish uh, to, to the eye in the eyes of the authorities. Um, but that's a good thing. You know, they want to consume more. They want to borrow more. So they're going to change the economy. Um, but I, I still think the roots are culturally deeply rooted in China, that local, uh, the relationship with the local culture. You know, in the last decade or so, 80 percent of the students who have studied abroad have returned to China. And if really China wasn't a really great place, how could these people who had jobs at Microsoft and Google and Facebook give them up? to go back to pursue their future in China. So it can't be as bad as we think. In fact, uh, they have been rather optimistic about their nation's future. Okay, Eugene, thank you so much. Thank you, Stephanie. That's it for this episode of Stephanomics. Next week, we will have more. In the meantime, you can get a lot more economic insight and news from the Bloomberg Terminal website or app. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen, Yang Yang and Sama Sadi, with special thanks to Professor K.U. Jin. The executive producer of Stephanomics is Molly Smith and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Sage Bowman. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. 
Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.